0: We are in our second week now of our series in the book of Psalms. Um, there's, there's, a, there's 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. Uh, some of them, the shortest Psalm, does anybody know which Psalm is the shortest Psalm? Off the top of your head, anybody know? Joe, you know it? Psalm chapter 117. How many? Can anybody guess how many verses Psalm chapter 117 is? Two verses. Two verses. So, if you go memorize Psalm chapter 117, you can go and, and brag to people and say, I memorized an entire chapter of the Bible. What? Right? It's pretty cool. Or, if you really want to go big, you can go memorize Psalm chapter 119, which is the longest chapter in Psalms and in the entire Bible. Can anybody guess how many verses is in Psalm chapter 119? It's about 176, if I recall. So if you can memorize that one, I will give you major props. In fact, if you can memorize Psalm chapter 119, I will personally give you a $100 Oshawa Center gift card. No joke. You memorize Psalm chapter 119, I will give you a $100 Oshawa Center gift card. You heard it here first. This is being recorded, so you have proof. So if you do it, you can go, Pastor Jared, you remember on November the 12th, 2017, you said, and I will will stick to it. I'll do it. It's only for the people here in this room right now, and I will remember, I have laser-like vision and memory, photographic memory, that's what they call it. So we're in the Psalms Uh, today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 51, so if you want to go ahead and start turning there, you can find the 51st Psalm. Uh, Beth said earlier, she mentioned a story uh, that she didn't have time to tell you, but uh, and we didn't even talk about this, but luckily I'm about to tell you that story. So if you were sitting there going, oh man, I really wanted to hear that story that Beth was talking about. Well, it's your lucky day. You're going to get to hear it in just a second. It's a story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm going to kind of tell that story because David wrote this psalm on the heels of what happens in this story. Today's sermon is entitled, What to Do When You Sin. What to Do When You Sin. Now, there are two types of people here this morning, okay? There are those of you who are Christians, uh, but just because you're a Christian does not mean that you don't sin anymore, right? Uh, All of us uh, are going to continue to fall short of God's glory. That's why we're thankful for the gospel, because God does not expect perfection out of us to be accepted by Him. He simply asks us to trust in Jesus. And then there's also those of you here who, uh, you are not a Christian, you're not born again, and and you may even uh, perhaps be one of those who uh, downplays uh, your sin. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed a lot as I go out into the community in Oshawa and I talk to people who are not Christians, I'll hear something along the lines of, well, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I've done, I've lived a pretty good life, or I've done pretty good. We have this tendency to compare ourselves to our neighbors and downplay our sin, right? Well, you know... Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as my neighbor over here because that guy hasn't mowed his lawn in a year. I would never do something like that, right? So we we tend to play the compare and contrast game. So this message is important because we need to get an accurate view of of what sin is because how we respond to sin has implications here in this life, and it also has implications in eternity, all right? So, for the Christian, the wrong response to sin will kill your joy and your intimacy with God, okay? And for the non-Christian, the wrong approach to sin could damn your soul forever. So, this morning, we're going to look at how a godly man who messed up big time, we're going to look at how he responded. So, the story, you don't need to turn there, but if you want to read it later, it's in 2 2 Samuel chapter 11. And chapter twelve, so King David is king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel there ever was. God handpicked David to lead his people Israel. Okay, uh, the Bible even says that David was a man after God's own heart. Right, so David was was doing pretty well in his relationship with God. Well, one day. Uh, You know, David's kingdom had expanded, things were going well, and uh, at the time of year where the king would send his armies out to war, usually the king was supposed to go with the armies because he was commander-in-chief, right? And David decided, "Eh, you know what, I think I'm just going to hang back this time. They don't need me. I'm just going to hang around the castle and kick my feet back and relax. Well, that was David's first mistake, that he allowed idleness to come into his life, right? So he stays back and... How many know, have anybody ever heard the phrase uh, uh, um, that idleness is the devil's workshop? Your parents may have said that to you. Or maybe you heard your grandparents. It's an older phrase that doesn't get said a lot, right? Idleness is the devil's workshop, right? So when we're idle, we, got, we don't have things to keep us busy. That's when that those wheels start turning, right? Right? And we start getting bored and we start looking for things. Well, that's exactly what happened to David. One day, David was out on his rooftop going for his evening stroll and... Um, The way things happened back then is that people would bathe on the rooftops, okay? They didn't have like showers with roofs, you know, underneath, and they didn't have plumbing, things like that. So they go on the rooftop to bathe. David's out there strolling, and he sees a very beautiful woman bathing on the top of the roof. And David decides uh, in that moment, uh, I want to know who that woman is. And so he sends some servants, and they go, and they find out that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men one of the most loyal soldiers that David had, and Uriah was out to battle. So you would think that would be the the roadblock that makes David go, "Eh, maybe I better stop here. Nope. David continued. He had several chances to do the right thing, and he continued to speed right past those speed bumps. He told his servants, bring her here, and they did, and David slept with her. He committed adultery, and he slept with Uriah's wife. Well, Couple of weeks go by, and David gets a message from Bathsheba. Guess what? She's pregnant. Uh-oh! Now, now David's got a big problem on his hands. So what does David do? Does he decide to, you know, uh, repent and turn around? No, he doesn't. He decides what, honestly, let's, if we're being real, what most people try to decide to do. I got to figure out how to cover this up, right? Because I don't want anybody to know about it. So he comes with, up with a plan, and he has Uriah come back from the front lines. And he tells Uriah, he's like, man, you've been doing a great job out there in battle. You know what, man, what I, I would just love for you, if you could just, why don't you just go home and hang out with your wife tonight and, you know, maybe get intimate, right? And Uriah says, I can't do that. My, my brothers in arms, my countrymen right now are on the front lines facing death. How could I possibly go and, and be with my family when my brothers can't be with theirs right now? Wow, talk about a stand-up guy, right? I mean, Uriah wanted to do the right thing. He had integrity. So he doesn't do it. So the next night, David tries again. This time, he has Uriah over for a big party and gets him drunk. And now, and it's, Uriah, go home. Uriah doesn't do it. He won't go home, and he won't go to be with his wife. So ultimately, David finally comes up with the most devious scheme that he possibly can. He gets desperate. And he actually gives a sealed letter to Uriah and has Uriah bring it back to his commander on the front line. And inside that sealed letter, it says, send Uriah into the front lines and pull back when the enemy comes so that his life will be taken. David murders one of his mighty men, Uriah, so that he can cover up his sin. Okay? David ends up marrying Bathsheba. A couple of days go by. And Nathan, who's a prophet of the Lord, comes to David. And Nathan says, King David, I have something to tell you, a story to tell you. He says, there is a, a wealthy man and a poor man. And This wealthy man had, had sheep and cattle all across the mountainside, more than he could count. And there was a poor man who had one little lamb. The little lamb was the only thing that he had. He loved this little lamb. He would even let this little lamb sleep in his bed with him. He would hand feed the little lamb. And one day the rich man had a guest come over. And whenever guests came over in the Middle East, you would, you would slaughter an animal to feed them. But instead of the rich man taking one of his thousands of sheep, the rich man went and he took the poor man's little lamb and he slaughtered that lamb to give to his guests. And King David was irate when he heard this. He said, Bring that man here and let's have him put to death. Nathan looked at King David. A humble prophet looks straight at a king and says, you are that man. You are that man. You took the wife of Uriah for yourself, and then you had him murdered to cover it up. And at that moment, conviction set in for King David, and he knew. He knew that God knew exactly what he had done. How many of you guys know that God always knows what we do? You can hide it from other people. You can hide it from your friends. You can hide it from your family. You can hide it from society. God knows. He sees everything. And God found David out. So, David, uh, the, one of the consequences for David doing this is that God took the life of his son, who was who Bathsheba, when she was pregnant. God took the life of this child, Right? And uh, David, after that happened, uh, he, he got washed off, he went and washed himself, he got dressed, and the Bible says that he went into the temple to pray. And I believe that uh, this is probably where that psalm was composed, right here, on the heels of that. And so this is Psalm chapter 51, I want you to listen to what David prays on the heels of that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, like David, you can be a man or a woman after God's own heart, and you can still break God's heart. Right? Everybody ever felt that? I know I have. So what do we do when guilt and shame floods our lives as believers? Well, I think we can uh, find a a lot out about that question right here in this passage. I I think if I could sum up what David does here is David gets real with God. He gets real with God. We really see that in the first six verses. I love this psalm, by the way. This psalm, I have prayed this psalm back to God more than any other passage of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, I've prayed this psalm hundreds of times. In fact, this psalm was one of our scripture memory verses when I went to Oak Ridge Disciple House, the men's home, back in Texas that I went through. We memorized, there was was 78 different passages of scripture that we memorized there. And this was one of them, and it's probably my favorite one. Uh, And I have gone back to it again and again and again. In times where I feel like guilt and shame are going to overtake me, this is my cry to God. And this passage has earth-shattering implications when we really think about what it's saying so in these first six verses David humbles himself and he gets real with God we've got to be honest about who we are and about who God is Um, getting real with God another way to say that would be confession right when we get real with God about what we've done and and about the state of our hearts it's called confession confessing to God and for confession to take place there's there's three things that we've got to acknowledge, and there are things that David acknowledges here. Let me just point those three things out real quick to you. First, we've got to acknowledge—you've got to acknowledge that you are a sinner, right? David does that in verses one and two. You notice he says, uh, "He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin." So he actually uses three different terms to describe sin. You notice that? Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And they each have a a different kind of meaning or connotation. So transgressions would be a a willing act of rebellion against God's law. To transgress is to break a law, okay? So David acknowledges, I have broken God's law. Iniquity uh, refers to kind of a, a warped, sinful nature that twists God's design okay? Uh, So, it's a a, a twisting of what's right. It's a corruption of what is clean, okay? And then sin means missing the mark or falling short, okay? So, there's a, a standard of righteousness, right? And we fall short every single time. And so, David uses all three of those terms, I think, to kind of communicate the totality of his sinfulness, right? Like, I'm not just sinful, I'm really, really, really sinful. And he's trying to use every word that he can come up with in his vocabulary to express that back to God. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. You know, one of the most ungodly things about sin is that we downplay it. We downplay our sin. And all of us do it, Christians and non-Christians alike, we have this tendency to downplay our sin. There's lots of different ways we'll do that. Some of us, we might blame our actions on others. Well, I, I wouldn't have done it if she didn't do that to me, or I wouldn't have done this if my parents had raised me better. We blame our actions on others. Sometimes we compare our sin to others, like I mentioned earlier. Well, you know, my sin isn't that serious. Look what that person did over there. At least I'm not an adulterer. At least I'm not a murderer, right? Some people in our culture will even go so far as to call evil good, and they'll call good evil, and they'll look straight into the face of evil and say, that's not wrong. I'm free to do what I want. I create my morality. It doesn't matter what God says or the Bible says. There is no God. I do whatever makes me feel good, and that's morality. Sometimes we just ignore our sin. We'll downplay it by just ignoring it, and we just pretend it's not there, but Pretending it's not there doesn't make it go away. And other times we'll hide our sin. We'll say, since nobody else knows about it, maybe God won't notice either. But we know God knows. You know, uh, we can learn a lot from David's response to Nathan the prophet. Did you notice how David responded when Nathan came and basically stuck his bony finger in David's face and said, You are that man. Now some of us would be like, What, bro? Come on, come at me, right? You want to fight? Let's go, Nathan. We'll do this right here, right? Like, that's how some of us would react to that. How dare you talk to me that way? Especially a king, right? I mean, if you're a king, you're going to let somebody talk to you like that? David knew. David knew that Nathan was a prophet of God, and and I think David understood Proverbs 27, 6. It says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Hey, if you've got a friend in your life who is willing to come and talk to you about your sin, you have a good friend for life. You have a great friend. A true friend is going to tell the truth, no matter what. And they're going to love you more than they love their own reputation, more than they love their own acceptance. Don't dismiss friends who are willing to tell you the truth. So we need to acknowledge that we're a sinner. Also, we need to acknowledge that God is judge. Verse 4 David does that. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Basically, what David meant by that is, God, you have seen what I've done. I know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. And I am at your mercy. And you would be totally just and totally right to judge me right now. And whatever judgment you came down with, my mouth is stopped. I cannot complain. I cannot say anything. Because you're the judge. And David admits that God will judge sin. This isn't a popular concept today, but it's true, so I'm going to talk about it. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says that God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Psalm 96.13 says He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So, about to level with you guys here, okay? It's time for that wounds from a sincere friend thing that you've all been looking forward to, all right? Judgment Day will be a horrific, terrifying day for everyone who does not have Jesus as their advocate. It's real and it's coming. As sinners, we have defied the law of God and we have raised our fist against Him. And God is perfectly just to cast all of us into hell forever. Okay, He does not owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And if you continue to reject Him by rejecting His Son Jesus, then He will. But friends, God's mercy is so much greater than our sin. God would be perfectly just to just let us go. Fine. You guys don't want me. You don't want my law. You don't want to live Underneath my rule, fine. Leave and don't come back. That's what hell is, by the way. It's the absence of God. We, a lot of times we, I hear people complain about uh, hell, but they don't want to live under God's rule either. And um, I, I try to explain to them, if you don't want to live under God's rule and reign, what you are asking for is hell. <laughs> That's literally what it is. But God doesn't want that for us because he knows we need him. And I think that the darkness of Judgment Day sets a backdrop that makes the light of the good news about Jesus shine even brighter. That brings us to the third thing that we need to acknowledge. We need to acknowledge that, that not only that we are sinners and that God is judged, but that God is merciful. And that's what David acknowledges in verses one and two. Look what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What I want to point out there is that the, the basis for David's request was not his own worthiness. It was God's mercy. So picture it like this. David comes to to God and and says, says, God, have mercy on me. And God says, why? And David says, because you're merciful. That's all I got. That's all I got. I've got nothing else to bring to you, God. I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm unclean. I know I've fallen short. But you are merciful. God loves to hear that because he is. Because he is. Did you know that that's enough? Did you know you don't need anything else to receive mercy from God? That it's enough that he's merciful? That that can be the reason that you come to him and ask for mercy? Well, but, but what about what I did last Doesn't matter. But, but what, if I've, what if I've done the same thing over and over again? It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with you and your worthiness. It has everything to do with him and his mercy. David uses the term, that, that term abundant mercy is actually one Hebrew word, and it means tender mercy. It's, the, it's this connotation of compassion. Isn't it amazing that, that God has tender mercy and compassion towards his enemies? Who does that? God does that. God does. It would be frightening to confess your sin to a God who's not merciful, wouldn't it? I could understand you wanting to hide your sin from a God who is like a loose cannon, and you just never know what's going to happen. I mean, one day he might be, okay, you're good, and the next guy might be, zap, and you're gone, right? That would be terrifying. But that's not who God is. We receive mercy when we come to him. Listen Listen to 1 John. I'll let 1 John just say it. He says it better than I can. Listen to the word of God here. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, now, and John's writing to the church, by the way. He's writing to saved people, to Christians, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's one of the most incredible promises in the Bible right there, church. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. That's a guarantee. It's a promise. You don't have to be afraid to get real with God. In fact, the Bible says right here, if you get real with God, you get mercy. Guaranteed. Why would we not confess our sins in light of that amazing truth? If you have sin in your life today, let me urge you to confess it. Confess it. Confess it to the Lord, and then confess it to a brother and sister in Christ. James chapter 5, verse 6 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Stop being burdened by guilt. What's going to happen if you withhold that in and you don't confess it, it's going to eat you alive. It's going to eat you alive and you will never have peace with God as long as you hold it in and you don't confess it. Because like 1 John just said, you're basically making God out to be a liar. Because you're denying the, the reality of it being there. Confess your sin. Freedom is found in it. Why would you not? God is merciful. God is merciful. After David gets real with God, he, play, he prays this prayer of restoration in verses 7 to 15. So I want to acknowledge that we can go to God and we can know that we've been forgiven by faith but for Christians, sometimes we don't feel forgiven, right? You still feel guilty. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Probably the only one. Raise your hands. Anybody know, anybody know what it feels like to feel guilty still? Even though, like, I know what the Bible says. I know it says I've been forgiven. But I feel this shame. I feel this guilt. It's kind of like uh, a war zone and a bomb has been dropped on a city. And the war is over. Everything's quiet. But there's collateral damage everywhere, right? There's just ruins, and that's how our hearts can feel sometimes. Because sin does a lot of damage to our relationship with God. But thankfully, it doesn't have to be permanent. Uh, David describes some of the effects that sin can have on us in his prayer. Uh, look specifically at verses 10, 11, and 12. He asked God to create, create in me a clean heart. So obviously, he didn't feel clean in his heart, did he? He felt dirty. In verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence. Man, nothing will make us feel distant from God like giving in to sin, will it? Whether it's a perpetual sin that we give into over and over again, or maybe it was a big, fat blunder like David did, right? Like we really fell big time. During those times, we can feel very distant from God. In verse 12, he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sin will kill your joy like nothing else, won't it? It's kind of hard to feel joyful and to to really feel saved on the heels of a colossal collapse like David went through. Sin disrupts worship from the heart. But here's the thing. It's actually a good thing when your heart feels very bothered by sin. Did you know that? We just don't want to stay there. But it's a good thing. Uh, medical doctors uh, describe pain as the fifth vital sign, right? So they'll say pain is the fifth vital sign. Pain does not feel good, but can we all agree that in the end it's probably a good thing? I mean, if like if you were like this guy right here, I think there's a picture. Mark, is that I might I might be going out of order, but I mean, like if you're this guy right here, right, and you've got an arrow sticking out of your rear, if you don't have the sense of pain. Well, that's going to be a problem because you're going to probably bleed out and not even know it if you can't feel anything, right? So, sometimes pain helps us to identify what's wrong, and that's true physically, and it's also true spiritually. Pain alerts us to something that is wrong in our bodies. If sin does not cause you pain, there's actually a great cause for concern in your life. If you can ignore God's commands and it doesn't really bother you that much, it's a telltale sign that you do not have the Spirit of God inside of you. That's, that's why, by the way, if you've ever read 1 John chapter 3 and it scared you a lot, it's probably a good thing that that passage scares you. Uh, in that passage, John says, those who have been born into God's family cannot continue in sin. I remember when I first became a Christian reading that and going, oh no, that's not good because I sinned this morning and I'm pretty sure I'm going to tonight. Am I a Christian? Right? Anybody ever felt like that before? Am I the only one? Come on. I know I'm not the only one. Look, that's the reason that 1 John chapter 3 is telling us that is because he's telling us if you have the spirit of Christ inside of you, you can't just keep on sinning like nothing else is going wrong. Nothing else is going on like you know, ho-hum, I'm just going to keep on doing this thing that's breaking God's commands over here. The Spirit of Christ will not let you. You will not be able to keep doing it because He's going to make you miserable. He will make you miserable. He will not let you continue in sin. If we continue to ignore the voice of God again and again and again, then we shouldn't be surprised if the voice of God becomes, if we become numb to God's voice right if our hearts begin to be hardened that's why hebrews chapter 3 says warn each other every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and have your hearts hardened against god we tell each other truth if you feel disturbed by sin this morning if you've been in a dry season where you cannot worship be encouraged okay be encouraged don't be exasperated Joy's not gone forever. The Holy Spirit hasn't been taken from you. God's not gone. He's still there. Charles Spurgeon says, Pain on account of sin is intense and permanent, and this is not a sign of divine wrath, but rather a sure preface of abounding favor. Spiritual pain is a sign of God's abounding favor. Psalm 30 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted, for they shall be comforted. I love that this psalm is in the Bible because God wouldn't put it there if he wouldn't answer this prayer, amen? God would not put Psalm chapter 51 in the Bible if he wouldn't answer it. This is a prayer that you can pray, that I can pray at any time. And God will answer it. He will restore the joy of your salvation. He will renew a right spirit within you. He will never cast you away from his presence. Christians aren't meant to live with guilt and we don't have to. You know one of the reasons that God removes guilt from us? Because we can't worship him with with guilt in our lives. We can't worship God with guilt freely. Maybe it's been a long time since you've truly worshipped. Or maybe you feel like reading the Bible has just been excuse me a chore. Or like your prayers are bouncing off the ceilings. The only thing getting in the way of your guilt being removed this morning, you know what it is? You know what's getting in the way of your guilt being removed today? It's only one thing. It's you. It's you not God. God's not getting in the way of your guilt being removed. He's ready and willing to wash you whiter than snow. Psalm one hundred three twelve to 14 says, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. That's the God that we worship here. I'm going to wrap up this sermon the way that David wraps up this psalm. In verse 16 and 17, David summarizes, I think, the entire psalm in two verses. Let's look at it real quick again. He says, he prays to God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So there's two approaches that we can take to get right with God when we sin. Just two approaches, okay? The first approach is in verse 16. The Israelites they they would go through the motions of the sacrificial system. They jumped through God's hoops and then they went on about their business. So They would sin, they would do something they weren't supposed to, and so every week they would make sure they came to the temple at the right time and offered the right sacrifice to make sure God was appeased, and then they would go on about their merry lives. But not David. David knew that God didn't care about all that stuff. He knew that God wanted his heart, that God wanted to change him, and David wanted to be near God. Behind me is a picture of our dog. Our dog's name is Timbit. That's Timbit. Timbit is a very sweet dog, um, but Timbit is also very mischievous. Timbit never does anything wrong when he's in front of me or Jen. He always waits until we are not around to do bad things. And believe me, whenever we are not around, he avails himself of every opportunity to do something wrong. So there have been many, many times over the past year where we've come home and the trash can is tipped over and there's trash everywhere, or the cat food has been devoured, or something like that, right? Something got destroyed. He's, he's done things like that when we, when we leave from time to time. And so naturally, I'm, I'm dad, I'm the disciplinarian of the household, and so dad's the one that disciplines the dog. So he will get a spanking or he'll get Tabasco sauce rubbed in his nose, something like that to teach him not to do those things. Well, unfortunately, it hasn't really worked because he has come to associate me coming home with like he's in trouble. So now every time we come home, he's hiding under the table with his tail tucked between his legs. Literally every time we come home. He never does it any other time, but it's when we come home, you know, it's like I joke with Jen sometimes. It's like our dog thinks that like, oh, dad came home from a night of drinking again and he's going to you know beat me or something. I'm like, gosh will even let me into heaven one day that's how we typically think about God I'm gonna this is important enough that I'm gonna repeat that because I don't want there to be distractions and I want you to I want you guys to really think about this so the way the Israelites were approaching God, is they were, they were bringing sacrifices to the altar, right, to appease him, right, just to make sure things were, would go well. God, Okay, God will continue to bless me and my family. Our crops will continue to grow. It will continue to rain. That's great, right? That's how we, we tend to approach God. If we appease him and offer some sacrifices, and today it might not look like going to sacrifice an animal on the altar, but it looks like, you know, go to church a few times a month, do a random act of kindness, give some money away, then God will hold back His anger, He'll bless us, and maybe we'll get to heaven one day. That's how pagans think about God. We cannot think about God that way as Christians. We are not pagans. God is not a Greek God in the sky that controls the sun or that that controls the crops, and that's just all He does. And depending on how much we feed Him sacrifices, that's how good He'll be to us. That is not the God of the Bible, church. The fact is, we are sinners. The guilt that you feel for sin is there for a reason. The fear of death is real because sin deserves death. You cannot appease God with your token good deeds. He is not impressed with church attendance or acts of kindness. In fact, if those things are not done in faith, He hates them. But he is merciful. Sacrifices can't please God, but God has made a way. At the right time, God sent Jesus, born of a virgin. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, did what we could not do. As a man, he worshipped God truly. He was blameless and spotless. He perfectly kept the law, but he went to the sinner's cross. And the guilt of mankind was placed upon him. He was forsaken by God and rejected by man. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Christ died. Now, like Paul says, if that were the end of the story, we are most of all to be pitied. We'd be worshiping a dead God just like all the other religions do. Did you guys know that Muhammad is dead? Did you know that Buddha is dead? Did you know that Confucius is dead? Joseph Smith, dead? Did you know that Jesus is alive? Listen to him. Jesus is alive. We do not worship a dead God, we worship a risen Savior seated at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ, who is coming back again to make all things new. And He is coming back for His people. He is not a powerless God who was unable to save. He is a mighty God who is able to do infinitely more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has always existed and He always will exist. And everyone who believes and lives in Him will live forever with Him. That is the Gospel. Oh God, I pray that you would believe that this morning. I pray all of you here would believe it. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. You don't have to appease a God. You don't have to do anything Fall on your knees this morning and cry out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your abundant mercy. He has shown His abundant mercy by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and for me. It's the gospel. It's the good news. John 1.12 says, To all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become Children of God, I believe that there's somebody here this morning right now, and I don't know who it is, and I don't know what's going on in your heart, but you know God's calling you to trust in Him right now. And maybe you've been in church for a while, but you know you haven't really ever done that. But something's happening in you right now, and I'll tell you what that something is it's the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God calling you, trust me, put the wall down. Take it down and let me in and let me make you new. If that's you this morning, I would just encourage you right in your seat. You do that. Don't wait. Don't put it off. In your own heart, in your head, you ask Jesus to forgive you. You cry out, have mercy on me, oh God. I am sorry for my sin. And oh friend, he will, he will forgive you right now. Don't put it off. Psalm 51, 17 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I know I say that every week, I feel like, but there's a lot of great verses in the Bible. But it's one I've prayed so many times. Look, look at that promise. Memorize that. And any time that Satan tries to, uh, you know, what, what's the song? Um, uh, Behold, Before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upwards I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That verse verse 17, the sacrifices that God desires are a broken spirit. And look what it says. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The NLT says, a broken and repentant heart, God will not reject. Ever, for any reason. There is nothing you can do that will ever, ever, ever make God reject you if you come to him with a broken and repented heart. That is amazing. It's amazing. Nothing. I don't care what you did. I don't care how bad of a person you are. Look, if God can save Saul and turn him into Paul, he can save you and turn you into the person that he wants you to be. You know Saul. He was the one that was killing Christians. You know, about as bad as it gets literally killing the body of Christ, Jesus. And God sh- stopped him on the road to Damascus and said, nope, not anymore, Saul. Your name is now Paul, and I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name. We're going to respond to uh, today's message, I think, appropriately by taking the Lord's Supper. And When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering. We're remembering the body of Jesus broken for us on the cross. Remembering the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. The blood that, that, that we are covered with. The blood that makes it possible for us to, uh, to come into the presence of God before the throne of God. You know, I was just reading in a book uh, a couple days ago. And in the Old Testament before Jesus came, there was only one person one time of year, who could go into God's presence. So there was the temple, and then the inside of the temple, there was a place called the Most Holy Place. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And God's presence was there. And so you know why only one person one time a year could go in there? Because God is holy, and we're not, and you would die if you went in there. So they took that seriously. And before the high priest could go in, this one time of year is called Yom Kippur. You may have heard of the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. He would have to wash himself and his clothes thoroughly. They had to offer five different sacrifices. And then they would actually tie bells around him. And they would attach a rope to his ankles so that just in case he was killed by the presence of God, the other priests could drag him out. That's some serious stuff, right? That's the presence of God. That's a little bit of a taste of the separation that's between sinners and a holy God. Now listen to this. Listen to this. You know what Jesus' sacrifice did? The blood of Jesus that was said for us. Hebrews says that that he's the great high priest. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus Jesus has made a way for us to boldly come into the throne room of God. Which means that you can walk bold-faced right into the most holy place. Right into God's presence and you don't have to fear. No bells around your ankles. You can walk in and you will not be rejected because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You can walk right into the presence of God and talk to Him face to face as a friend talks to a friend, as a son or daughter talks to their father. The precious blood of Jesus has bought that for us. Let's worship Him right now. Jesus, we worship You this morning. And we cry out to You. You are our King. We have no other God besides You. You are the Lamb who is worthy. The Lamb who was slain for us. You are Jesus. You are faithful. You are risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. You are our great High Priest. The one who intercedes for us at the throne of the Father. And you are coming back again. We are your church, your body. You are our head. And Jesus, we want people in this city so badly to know you. I pray. Jesus, in your holy name, that you would pour your spirit out upon our church. That you would pour your spirit out upon me. You said that when we take the Lord's Supper, that you are with us. Church, let's just take time right now to be still and know that he is God. That he's here. I want to do the Lord's Supper this way. I'm going to ask Chris uh, to come up. Um, and I want you to just come and take the Lord's Supper whenever you're ready. I want us to spend some time in the presence of God right now and pray. Maybe you need to do business with God this morning, and there's just things you need to talk to Him about. He's listening. You could come to Him in Jesus' name, and He's ready with open arms, and He can't wait to hear from you. And He wants to talk to you. So let me just encourage you to take some time to listen to what God is, is wanting to say to you this morning. and Do whatever you think, feel He's calling Him. When you're ready, you can come up, and you can take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read the passage real quick. And you can, and you can take it on your own, by the way, the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Here's the passage. When the hour had come... And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Turn on some soft music in the background, Mark, just instrumentals. Jesus, we uh, we thank you for the gospel, God. That you would look upon sinners like us, unworthy, unclean, and that you your first thought towards us is not disappointment and wrath, but but tender mercy. Even in even in the book of Isaiah. Uh, when you're speaking about the, the the nation of Moab, who they weren't even your people, and and they're about to be destroyed, and and you, and you say that your heart, uh, from from the inward uh, parts of your being, you moaned like a liar for Moab. You were grieved for them. God, you are so merciful. You are so good. You have graven our name upon your hand and made us your own. Right now, guys, you can at this time feel free to come up and take uh, the Lord's Supper um, or you can just sit silently and and I'm just going to put the mic down for a minute and just spend some time in prayer myself so you can stand, you can kneel, you can sit, you can pray to yourself, you can pray out loud, whatever you feel like doing and come up and take the Lord's Supper whenever you're ready. And if you need to pray with somebody, you come up here and you get me.